Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. I'm at a Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's Friday, August 27th, 2021. I'm going to read you a headline to tell you what's going on in the world right now, but I'm not going to read a headline from today's New York Times. I'm not going to read a headline from the Sun-Times or the Tribune either, or even the Wall Street Journal, which for reasons I'll never understand, landed on my doorstep one day this week. Yes, I was reading the Wall Street Journal, as I talked about in an earlier show, and been making multiple stock investments ever since as a result of the information I gleaned. I'm just joking. Didn't make any stock investments. All right, here's the headline that I'm going to cite. It's from The Week, theweek.com, and it's written, uh, well, not the headline, but the essay underneath the headline is written by our mystery guest. I think you can all guess who the mystery guest is. Uh, and here is the headline. The end of America's post-9-11 delusion. A rapid collapse in Afghanistan caps off 20 years of refusing to acknowledge the limits of American power. A headline you probably never read in any mainstream newspaper, unfortunately. Without further ado, I'm going to ask the distinguished guest who wrote the story that comes underneath this headline to introduce himself. Take it away, distinguished guest. Well, thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me back on the show. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty. How Democrats can build a lasting majority in American politics. And uh, before I became uh, somebody who writes about American politics, I did get my PhD in Middle East politics and spent some time in the region, uh, which will uh, sort of structure some of the things we talk about today vis-a-vis Afghanistan. But it's great to be back and I uh, can't wait to dive into some of this stuff. Yes, and uh, I urge everybody to check out the uh, deep dive that David and I did uh, about a month or so ago about the, the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Uh, he showed off his knowledge of the uh, of the region in that one, uh, that show as well. I'm very proud of that show. Uh, all right. Did you write, by the way, this headline, The End of America's Post-9-11 Delusion, A Rapid Collapse in Afghanistan, Afghanistan Caps Off 20 Years of Refusing to Acknowledge the Limits of... Did you actually write that, the headline? I itself? wrote the headline, but not the deck. So uh, I don't know if your readers know what that means, but the, 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 the top part of the headline is what I submitted when I when I wrote the piece. Um, you know, 90% of the time they change it because <laughs> they're better at it than me. 
Um, but they let but they left that one in place, and then they wrote the the sort of the subheading there. Um, so, so yeah, yes and no. I guess is the answer. Yes and no. Well, not not to make it like I'm siding with them over you, but I really like the subhead a lot. Uh, a rapid coll- I mean, the dilute nine eleven delusion is good line too. Not taking anything away from you, David, but a rapid collapse in Afghanistan caps off twenty years of refusing to acknowledge the limits of American power. And this is why I say it would not appear in a mainstream publication. Feel free to disagree with me if you want. But just acknowledging the limits of Americans' power is too much for many mainstream newspapers to acknowledge. And this is part of the problem, in my humble opinion, David Ferris. We still were locked in to promoting this notion that America is all powerful. America is all great. There's nothing we cannot do if we try to do it. Even in the face of all the evidence that shows that we're not perfect, there are limits to what we can accomplish. And that mo- most of these attempts to just force ourselves on other countries just adds up disastrously for everyone involved. And yet we cannot seem to acknowledge that. Why is that, David? I think it's, you know, it's, partly myopia it's partly um sort of overconfident patriotism it's also this syndrome um that that stems from an attitude that's like we have this enormous military so we need to use it um and the and the belief that we can use that military in the service of fundamentally non-military goals um and that is a pathology that i think has gotten much worse since the end of the second world war i think america's the military record post-World War II is just dreadful um, because the U.S. military has taken on for itself a variety of tasks um, that it is ill-suited to complete um, and for which we don't necessarily have the resources, the willpower, or the knowledge of, of these societies to, to, um, to do what we set out to do. Um, and there's also just this pervasive atmosphere of, uh, of hawkishness in, in the media, um, in our society, uh, there was a, you know, I guess there was a brief period, I wasn't around for this, but there was a brief period in the 70s, you know, where the military wasn't that cool, I guess. But um, at least in my adult lifetime, you go to a baseball game and there's like flyovers and we do the applause for uh, veterans. And so I'm not trying to, to uh, dig on veterans or anything. My dad's a vet. Um, I have enormous respect for people that, uh, that put themselves in harm, harm's way. Uh, I just don't, I think that they're asked to do things they shouldn't be asked to do. Um and they keep getting asked to do it, and um, it's it's a it's a it's a vicious cycle. And I, I guess if there's a one hope that might come out of this this mess in Afghanistan is that uh, it has I think it has changed public opinion um, in the direction of not wanting to do these things anymore. Even though public opinion can be really confounding, um, I, I do think that there's a, a burgeoning consensus that we should not have at least that we should not have gone into Afghanistan. Right, like that's not really what we're fighting about right now. Um, what we're fighting about right now is like who's responsible for the attack um, at the airport that killed 13 American service members and, uh, and dozens of, of Afghans. Um, who's responsible for, you know, these, you know, I'm just be honest, like these embarrassing scenes of people falling off airplanes trying to get out of Kabul. And um, it's not a good, it's not a good look, right? Um, and, and we're all, the, the fingers are being pointed and people are trying to, to score political points, uh, which is all fine. You know, this is the way it is. But I think, when we look at the bigger picture, um, the, the lesson here is really clear. Um, and that is, uh, we, we are not omnipotent. Um, you know, people, people used to say, we're the, you know, we don't want to be the world's police. 
um, I don't I don't like really like that phrase per se, but I think um, there is something to the sense that um, the American people don't necessarily want to be doing some of the things that we're doing overseas. Um, we're not very good at it. Uh, people cycle in and out of these countries really quickly. Um, there's not a lot of long-term expertise being deployed there. Uh, you have people who just paradrop into Kabul, don't speak a word of any of the languages spoken in Afghanistan, um, and try to transform the society that way. And the same story unfolded in Iraq. Um, and so it's it's just it's frustrating when you think about all of the resources that were spent on these wars after 9/11 um, that could have been spent elsewhere, uh, applied elsewhere to, to other social and economic and political problems that we have here in the United States. And instead, we we just effectively wasted it. Like we we lit like two trillion dollars on fire in Afghanistan, um, killed hundreds of thousands of people, and, and brutalized the country again. Um, and we did it, of course, as we always do, Ben, with the best of intentions. Um, and it's 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 long past time that we ask ourselves: Do we have the capability uh, and the temperament to take our best intentions and turn them into what we want it to be? And I think that we don't. I think that's the real lesson here. Well, I got to tell you, uh, as a uh, longtime Chicago journalist, and I spent most of my life chronicling the politics in Chicago, I'm going to have to uh, disagree with you with the best of intentions. Uh, we'll get into the specifics. I, I think you're being too kind to the people who waged the war in Afghanistan. I'm not sure what their intentions were. and I'm not sure, I don't think I'd ever put the word best in front of it. Um, I, I know what you're getting at, that the rhetoric they employed uh, was grandiose and was cloaked in uh, great humanitarian pleas on behalf of people, particularly like women who live in Afghanistan under the Taliban regime, uh, and, and their uh, urge to create democracies around the world. I don't know if that was their intention. I know that was their rhetoric. And one thing I've learned about Chicago politics after 40 years of it, you can't believe a word that the people in power say. And I hate to say this because I feel like I'm feeding the anti-vaxxers, but David Ferris, I, I really believe this. There's a reason anti-vaxxers, going back to our last conversation, have taken hold because we are exposed on a regular occasion to just a bombardment of lies and mistruths from the people in power. And then they turn around and expect us to believe anything they tell us, even though we know, we know they're lying. And so I'm just going to take issue when you say the best of intentions uh, in all due respect. Yeah, no, I mean, um, obviously there are a lot of policymakers and generals and people in the military who, who don't have the best of intentions, who, who get on the ground in Afghanistan and they call people by, by certain kinds of slurs that get deployed in the Middle East. Like I say, I'm on this show. Um, and they just, you know, they just want to kill people. They're out for vengeance. Um, I think that, like, when I talk about the best of intentions, I think maybe, maybe I'm talking about the way that Americans themselves envision what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, which certainly in Afghanistan began as like a war of vengeance to, to, to chase Osama bin Laden around and kill him and kill Al-Qaeda. Um, and we actually succeeded, you know, I mean, we... <laughs> We pushed the Taliban out of power um, and we pushed Al-Qaeda into Pakistan like pretty quickly after 9-11, like by January. Um, and it, that's that's the sort of inflection point here where it went from let's get Al-Qaeda and let's let's hold the people responsible for, for harboring them, um, you know, accountable for what they did. Um, and, and then it became something else entirely. Uh, it became chasing around terrorists who didn't actually exist for several years in, in Afghanistan. 
it became about uh, um, a domino effect theory where we were going to plop democracies down in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and just watch as the demonstration effects led to, to tyrannies being overthrown all over the region. Um, there's a certain myopia about how easy it is to construct a democracy. Like you just take a, you, know, you take a blueprint of a constitution, you gather everybody together, and you're like, this is how it's going to work, all right? Uh, every four years, you get a new leader, and they just have these elections, and it's you're grafting all this stuff onto a country that's been through, um, at that point, you know, 20 odd years of civil war, um, 10 years of violence before that. Um, there's very, very little experience with, with operating a functioning democracy. As we've learned here, democracy is really not necessarily all about the formal rules that you put into place, it's about the willingness of different actors to abide by them willingly. Um, and it's like that second level of how hard this is going to be or how easy is this going to be just never seemed to occur to people who were who were on the ground in Afghanistan trying to do these things. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I agree with you um, that a, a lot of the people, we, we were lied to for, for 20 years about the progress that was being made, um, about uh, what the Taliban wanted even. Like they made repeated attempts to, to make peace with us over the years um, that we could have had this moment you know, we could have had the, the moment at the Kabul airport like 15 years ago. It would have been exactly the same. Um, and it took, you know, tens of thousands of lives and, and trillions of dollars would have been saved. Um, it's about the lies that we were told, um, including up to like three weeks ago, um, about how long the, the government there could hold out, about the success or failure of our attempts to, 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 to stand up an enormous uh, Afghan security force that could take over the country for us. Um, we were lied to. I think about what seem to be informal understandings between American commanders and the Taliban uh, about who would actually be inheriting power in the country. Um, seems pretty clear to me that what happened in Afghanistan over the past month was a transfer of power rather than a military conquest of the Taliban. You know, like I, it doesn't seem like the Taliban really like went around the country and put all the cities under siege, and, and it's not like nobody fought, right? But um, it's, pre it's pretty clear that that the Taliban. Um, had an understanding with the with the government that we put into place and that we were not a part, you know, either we didn't know about it or we did know about it and 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 they lied to us, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's corrosive. Um, and these, these overseas adventures um, always end up being corrosive in this way because the military brass has this like deep-rooted incentive to get more resources um, and to keep the fight going and to, to not be the general that, 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 uh, you know, puts that flight plan to take the last Americans out of there. Like, you don't want to be the guy that surrenders the country. Um, and so they want more and they want more. And they tell us, you know, they give us the rosiest assessments. And, you know, I don't want to single out the military necessarily because, like, this is true in, in any human institution <laughs> uh, where when things are going badly and they're failing, um, people come up with unrealistic expectations um, about how, how things might go. Um, and they they want to keep their jobs um, and they don't want to be humiliated. Um, and so there's all these like just sort of human things going on. Um, but at the, at the heart of it is you have this enormous, uh, the most powerful military in the history of, of humankind. It's just pulverizing um, this impoverished country, trying to create a government that nobody wants. Um, I'm not even sure the people that worked for the Afghan government wanted the Afghan government to work. And outside this bubble of Kabul, um, we never had control of the place, you know. So I don't yeah. know why anybody expected it, that that government would last for more than five minutes. Um, it's even, it was even a worse situation than the one we left in Iraq, honestly. 
And that was pretty bad, but at least that government um, had some functionality to it, right? Um, whereas this one, it's like, it, it was just, um, it was like a piece of paper, you know? It was like uh, those uh, those old stories about the Soviet Union, you know, where they, they, they pay people to work and, you know, uh, but people wouldn't actually go to work, you know? It was like, there's these fictional payrolls. And I think there was a lot of that going on with this so-called Afghan military too. Um, Joe Biden has talked about it in a way that I actually don't really love, where he's like blaming the Afghans. And I'm like, look, man, <laughs> you know, you're asking people to to fight their their uh, their fellow citizens, and they don't want to. And so of course they're not yeah. going to do it. You know, if they feel like they're outgunned and we're running, right? Like we're leaving. Why would they stay and fight? You know, they're going to make their accommodations for yeah. the Taliban, and life will go on. So anyway, that's. That's yeah. <laughs> well, by the way, you said something. I wrote it down. Uh, you don't want to be the uh, the guy who surrenders the country. That's what you said. Quote. And then immediately I thought, but you definitely want to be the guy who invades it. Mm -hmm. Really twisted, bizarre. The, all the glory to the uh, generals who led the initial invasion. They are treated like great heroes in mass media, uh, paraded around like wise men uh, who. Um, have thought deep and long and hard about the meaning of what they're doing. And, and we're just fed this stuff on a route. And I'm telling you, if you really want, folks, just follow Chicago politics for about 10 years and you will understand what's going on. All right. I'm going to read the lead uh, into your essay in the, uh, in the week, which uh, I already read the headline. I'm going to read the lead, which is a very powerful lead. Uh, and that'll get us into the first question, which is, why did we go in? So here is the lead in David Ferris's uh, recent column on Afghanistan. Quote, we must remember how it all started. The attacks of September 11th, 2001, were genuinely terrifying and disruptive. But the understandable shock and emotional trauma of 9-11 sent the United States off on a series of impossible, poorly planned, and incompetently executed quests President George Bush, who had promised a more, quote, humble, unquote, foreign policy in his campaign against Al Gore, launched what he called a, quote, global war on terror, end of quote, in the aftermath of the attacks. Quote, our war on terror begins with Al Qaeda, but it does not end there, Bush said on September 20th, before outlining the completely unachievable goal that would warp the early 21st century, quote, it will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated, end of quote. Just, I'll repeat that. Just think about how ridiculous this statement is, ladies and gentlemen. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. That was the stated goal of George W. Bush riding high in the polls, David. I don't think any president has been this popular in the aftermath of 9-11, most of the people in this country, except for Ben Jarofsky, were lauding George W. Bush. I remember like, cursing him. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, and Because uh, I still blame him for 9-11. He was asleep at the freaking wheel at 9-11. I mean, that's the part of the story. I think it really begins there, David Ferris. He was sleeping at the wheel. So he goes, I know what I'll do. I'll launch a war against Afghanistan. Everybody will rally around me. I'll give some great goal to achieve to end terrorism everywhere, which is completely delusional. You can't end terrorism everywhere because it's created on a constant basis. 
And the American public fed this BS by the mass media goes along with it. So let's talk about that goal, the initial goals, uh, stated goals, and then uh, whether you think Bush actually believed it when he said it, or was he just bamboozling, knowingly bamboozling the public? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just worth remembering, but you said it a little bit, but just um, even, even, even in comparison to like the early Trump years, I can't remember a lonelier time to be on the left uh, than in the than in the year or two following 9/11. Um, just to, if, if you even second guessed any of this stuff, you were objectively pro Saddam, you were objectively pro Al Qaeda, you were a traitor. Um, just uh, the kind of rhetoric that that was deployed against people that were just like asking questions, like, "Hey, what's the plan here? Um, hey, maybe this has causes other that that could be treated by things other than dropping bombs." Um, you know, you were just, uh, you were persona non grata. And that was, that was kind of the political context of the time. Remember George Bush had like a 90% approval rating in October of 2001. Um, and so the, the, the goal narrowly, that the reason that we went into the, to Afghanistan, um, was to overthrow the government. Okay. The, the Taliban, the people that we just handed the keys of Afghanistan back to after 20 years of feudal warfare, um, ha- had been in charge of Afghanistan for, uh, for the second half of the 1990s, and they were a group that emerged from the ashes of, uh, uh, of the Soviet war in Afghanistan. Remember the one that we um, we secretly bankrolled the, the we called the Mujahideen, the Holy Warriors, who were fighting to kill the Soviets who had invaded in 1979, um, in an enormously successful operation on its own terms that that generated um, now three decades of of, uh, of blowback. Um, you know, Al Qaeda itself was formed. In Afghanistan, in the context of the of the war against the Soviet Union, um, Osama bin Laden was a, a classic uh, Jared Kushner-style fail son of a, of a of a rich person who helped build all the roads in Saudi Arabia, um, and he was bored and and stupid, and he took a bunch of uh, Arabs to to fight alongside the Afghans um, incompetently. The Afghans didn't even want him there; they laughed at them. Um, but from from that was born Al Qaeda, was born a, a desire to um, to drive the United States and its allies out of the region so that they could impose um, this sort of austere revivalist form of Islam on these societies. And the idea being that we were in the way of that project. Um, And the Taliban were a group of younger um, uh, fighters who uh, were were trained in that civil war, not just the war against the Soviets, but there was a civil war then that followed the Soviet exit. This is all just like we're repeating history for like the fifth time in Afghanistan, right? Um, and uh, and they came in and they were they were these these radicals, right? They they were they're terrible. They <clears throat> and they have so much in common with other sort of religious revivalist movements and and other faiths, um, which share the desire to subjugate women, to place men atop a hierarchy. Um, to treat holy texts as as effectively a constitution, um, to to quash dissent, to to take away your right to read uh, or see anything that um, that gets in the way of that vision, and so that's who the Taliban were. And, and if you remember, in the late 1990s, um, they got a lot of press for the things that they were doing to women. You know, like they they closed all the you know they didn't let women in schools, like they fired all the women doctors and stuff. And that was the, that was actually the main discourse about the Taliban in the late 1990s was their threat to women's rights. And um, there was this whole hullabaloo where they went up and they blew up these uh, 
uh, I think it was these Buddhist monuments, um, uh, because anything that existed before Islam was like uh, uh, heretical, right? Um, and so, you know, like legitimately a group of bad people, but they were um, initially welcomed because they were they restored order in a large part of Afghanistan, um, which had been uh, which had been chaos for for many many years. And uh, if you haven't, you know, I, I of course have not. If you haven't been through a period um, where there's a civil war in your country and people are dying and it's just it's just horror after horror after horror. You can understand why somebody, you know, if somebody comes in and is like, I can put an end to this, you wouldn't really care what else they do, right? And that's that's the context of the Taliban. What the Taliban did, their big mistake was that they took Osama bin Laden in. So his group, Al-Qaeda, um, had been thrown out of Sudan um, by, the, by the Sudanese government um, at the behest of the United States. And the Taliban was the only group that would take him in. Um, so bin Laden relocated his organization and his family um, to Afghanistan in, uh, I believe it was 1996. And from there, from, from the mountains of Afghanistan, they set up a, a, essentially, uh, some people call it a parallel government. It actually had nothing to do with governing Afghanistan. It was an Al-Qaeda, it was a large Al-Qaeda training and planning camp that the Taliban allowed to exist um, and that we were well aware of. Uh, uh, Clinton tried to take it out with a, with a Tomahawk missile and failed in 1998 after the terrorist attacks in, uh, in Kenya and um, uh, Dar es Salaam. And, um, <clears throat> you know, they, they plotted, they carried out a series of attacks in the 1990s, including the attack on the USS Cole, um, a number of other failed plots that had they gone through would have been just like mind blowing. There was a plot in the mid 90s to blow up uh, 15 airliners over the Pacific Ocean at the same time. It's called the Bojinka plot. Didn't work, thank God. Um, but this, but 9-11, which uh, uh, they had secretly talked about in Al Qaeda circles, as, uh, as they called it, the big wedding. Uh, which was an operation that had been planned uh, during the Clinton administration, they they pulled it off, right? Uh, and we, you know, I don't want to retell the story of 9/11 to your audience, but uh, but it was a it was a big complex operation that involved getting people into the United States and getting them trained as pilots and hijacking a bunch of planes. And um, you know, had they had those, I, I don't know why they did this, but this was the plan. I think they those planes hit the buildings two hours later, they probably would have killed fifty thousand people instead of three thousand people. Um, and so it was the most spectacular terrorist attack, um, pro probably in the history of the world. Um, and so that's the context, right? Like we, Americans woke up on on the twelfth of September two thousand and one. We were shaken. Uh, I, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you lived in Chicago at the time, but everybody, everybody in all the cities was like freaking out, like don't go downtown, like who knows who knows what else is coming. Um, it was just a real puncturing of our sense of invincibility. And so the initial goal of the Afghanistan invasion was to throw the you know to get rid of the Taliban. Like, you know, the, the, the thinking being these were the, this was a government that harbored Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda carried out this terrible attack on us. Um, the only offer the Taliban made was to hand bin Laden and his associates over to a third country, um, which was, uh, seems fine now. <laughs> but you have to think of the context of the time. Um, and that Bush just, but Bush and his team just rejected it out of hands. And, and they, um, you know, they started the airstrikes. They partnered with a local... Uh, Afghan organization called the Northern Alliance, which was the only group really left in the country that was fighting the Taliban and trying to seize territory back from them. Um, and, uh, and so the goal was to get rid of the Taliban. And, and we, we got rid of the Taliban pretty quickly um, by December of uh, 2001 and January of 2020. Sorry. <laughs> oh, man. Time is a flat circle. 2001 to 2002, right? Uh, and and, and that's, that's the point at which I think a lot of policymakers today are stepping back and saying, 
boy, probably should have stopped there, right? <laughs> uh, how, how different the century would look if we had overthrown the Taliban and, um, and said, you know, we still want to get a bin Laden, but like we're done here otherwise. Um, and so anyway, that, that was the context. That's why we went in. Um, that, that action, the, you know, the toppling of the Taliban, the initial attack on Afghanistan, had like overwhelming public support. You know, the the, uh, the vote for the authorization of, for the use of military force in Congress was 420 to one. Um, I, I beg you to go in and read um, Barbara Lee, who is a representative Democrat from California, is the only person in Congress to vote against this war. Um, just imagine the kind of courage it took to cast that vote um, and the things that she was called at the time. And if you go back and you read her speech before Congress justifying her vote, I mean, she was right. And, you know, 400 and well, whatever, if you add the Senate, like more than 500 of her colleagues were wrong, um, including the current president of the United States. Um, and so, um, you know, there were people who saw it at the time. There were people who said, you're making a terrible mistake. You know, you're, you're acting out of anger. You're acting out of emotion, like an, an emotional wound. Um, and you're unleashing uh, just absolute holy hell on this country um, and some other countries without any real plan about how you're going to end it or what we're hoping to achieve. And the president has just declared war on a tactic. You know, it'd be like if Biden was like, I declare war on yoga. You know, it's like you can't. It's just a thing. Terrorism is just a thing. It's a tactic that that human beings use to achieve their goals. Right? You can't you can't fight terrorism. Right. Like you can push back against certain groups that are using it. And you can think about the strategies to bring their campaigns to an end. But you can't eradicate terrorism. It was a it was a completely bonkers goal from the very beginning that set that set the United States up for failure on its own terms, you know, which is which is the mind-boggling part of it. Yeah. Wow, that's a great riff. Um I'm gonna ask you to go back a little further sure. instead of going forward. Uh and this is a question I get from a lot of uh, people, younger people weren't even well, they were born at the time, but they were just kids. What is the strategic significance of Afghanistan that compelled so many? I mean, we could go way back to the 19th century with the Brits, but why have so many powerful nations invested so much money and lives into uh, fighting wars in this small, impoverished country far away from where their people reside. What is the significance of Afghanistan? I mean, that's a great question. I, I'm probably a dissenter here in, in saying that I don't think it has ever had the strategic value <laughs> that the people who have been fighting over it think that it had. Um, but if you go back to the you know 17th, 18th century, you can kind of see it, right? Like the UK, you know, Britain had an empire um, whose, whose crown jewel was, was India. Um, in Afghanistan, you can kind of have to, to traverse Afghanistan if you want to get there by land. Um, it also just has the misfortune of, of being kind of on the border between multiple historical empires. Right? So you've got, you've got the Russian Empire to the north. Um, you have the Ottoman Empire to the southwest. Um, you have the British Empire sort of pushing into all of these areas, uh, laying claim to India. Um, and I'm, I'm really, I'm not an expert on 19th century history here, but... Um, but they called it the great game. You know, it was a place where the imperial competition was played out 
um, at the expense of of this uh, this weak country. Uh, it's a theme of of uh, of this region. Um, I always like to say Afghanistan is not. So I studied the Middle East, and in our field, we didn't really consider Afghanistan to be part of the Middle East. Um, it's sort of like it's like you have one of those friendship groups, and there's like a person who just comes to dinner sometimes, but you're not really an insider. Like that's that's Afghanistan, the Middle East, right? It borders Iran, right? Like it has some overlap with the Middle East, but it's not. It's fundamentally it's it's fundamentally a Central Asian country, right? Um, in, in as much as we think that these geographic boundaries have any meaning, and not just like social constructs, but um, but you can certainly see why the British and the Russians were like fighting over Afghanistan on their own terms, um, and then in, in during the Cold War, of course, anything. Um, that the Russians and the Americans could conceivably fight over became something of strategic value, you know. So the um, the, the Russians went went into Afghanistan um, to prop up this like this weak uh, communist government that they'd installed there, um, and we treated it like the end of the world. I mean, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, I actually really think is like one of the the pivot points of of, of modern history, uh, at least modern American military history. Um, in the sense that uh, Car Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time, who we've romanticized as this like adorable old liberal, but who actually governed in foreign policy like pretty hawkishly, um, Carter thought that the Russians might go into Iran next, right? um, which is a which is Afghanistan's neighbor and it's where a lot of the world's oil is. They were worried about Saudi Arabia. Like if the Russians are going to Afghanistan, where else are they going to go? Russians had no intention of going to any of these places. By the way, Soviets. You mean Soviets? Yeah, the Soviets, of course. Yeah. Um, and, and Carter announced the Carter Doctrine in response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which is any threat to the uh, basically any threat to the oil reserves of the Persian Gulf is a is a threat to vital U.S. national security. Um, and so I'll leave I'll leave the great game to the historians to, for the details. But the way that we came to regard Afghanistan as something that was very important to us uh, happened with the Soviet invasion as part of the Cold War, um, and we. Um, you know, we we wanted to crush. We wanted to give the Russians their. We wanted to give the Soviets their Vietnam there, and we we did that, right? But mm -hmm. we're still dealing with the consequence of that choice. And I, I urge anybody who uh, wants to appreciate uh, what David is getting at, watch a movie called Charlie Wilson's War. I believe that's the name of the movie, and it stars stars America's favorite uh, actor, the great liberal Tom Hanks. Uh, it was directed by, I'm doing this off the top, I think Mike Nichols directed it, another liberal. Uh, and it is essentially, it pays homage to a congressman uh, who manipulated the budget process in Washington to guarantee that the opposition forces uh, in uh, Afghanistan were funded so that they could have, and, and uh, supplied with missiles and arms so they could fight the Soviets. And it was considered a pivotal a battle. This movie still, David, this movie was made when the mindset of the country was very much along what you were talking about, where this was a key battle for liberty, freedom, democracy, and standing up to the communist threat. And it's, this movie's made with no sense of irony uh, and complete tone deaf <laughs> ignorance about the years that will follow. And I'm sure Tom Hanks, well, Mike Nichols has died. I'm sure Tom Hanks is embarrassed he ever made. I actually do not know what Tom Hanks' attitude so I'll take that back. Uh, but it just underscores everything you said. Jimmy Carter, 
great post-president, perhaps the greatest of my life. But what a disappointment. <laughs> I really put, remember he pulled out of the Olympics. No, I, it was, they were so out. The United States feels the compel. They can go invade any country in Central America anytime they freaking want. They've been waging war against Cuba for how many years, David Ferris? But wait a minute. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan? That's it. No more Olympics for Ben. Wait, I want to watch. Anyway. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, but and yeah. On, before we get to your next question, uh, I just, while we're on the subject of movies really quick, yeah. Um, I always I teach this in, in class. I show my students a clip from, do you remember this? Rambo 3. Um, uh, they all come together. I I believe I've seen every yeah. Rambo, but they, yeah, I can't remember. Go ahead. All dreadful, all dreadful movies. Well, anyway, for, for whatever reason, I can't remember why, but Sylvester Stallone ends up in Afghanistan. I, I assume just chasing down one of his buddies or something or somebody's trapped and they come to him. And the movie, which was uh, which was secretly bankrolled by the by the Reagan administration, is like an encomium to the the um, the mujahideen, the people fighting the Soviets. The the end credits are a dedication to the brave mujahideen of Afghanistan, and, and Sylvester Stallone like fights side by side with them, um, and because they love to you know in 1980s they love to kill Russians on screen. It was a good time. Um, just the, the stories from this time period are wild, like USAID. Um, like the, the U.S. Agency for International Development produced textbooks for Afghans that included math problems about how quickly a bullet would kill would kill a Russian if it was was fired from a certain distance. Like just just banana stuff, man. Like we went all in on the Afghan resistance to the Soviets, only to find that we had created a kind of a monster that we could no longer control. And then we're really still dealing with the consequences of that. Absolutely, that's I. Uh... That's really an important point to make. And by the way, I keep insisting and in calling them Soviets, not Russians. And the only reason I do this, not because I'm weird, is because it was the Soviet Union was a conglomeration of all these federations in and around, including Russia, uh, in that neck of the woods. That was this all-powerful communist country that I know youngsters out there can't believe it, but my whole life, for like the first 30 years, that's what our country was dedicated to eradicating. And when the Soviet Union finally fell apart, David, our country didn't just say, okay, that's over. Now we could spend money on schools and hospitals and roads and whatever. No, they, they just went and found more enemies. Gorbachev was right. Endless war. Uh, so, well, all right. Because we found a way to panic about every little, what we started to call rogue state. Uh, you know, every country that refused to be folded into the international order at the time like I like I mean I feel like future historians are going to just marvel at the fact that the most powerful country in the history of the world flipped out for 20 years about like Iraq and Iran countries that cannot fundamentally do any serious harm to us um and that's that's another piece of this story about how we ended up in these long 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 conflicts. Well Soviet Union what was their strategic reason for invading uh Afghanistan? Um they wanted you know they regarded friendly communist regimes on on their border as like a um, a buffer zone between the U.S. and its allies in the Soviet Union. And so if you think back to the time, remember, um, in 1979, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, the Iranian revolution was not yet complete. At the time, um, between uh, when, we, when the CIA engineered the overthrow of a democratically elected government in Iran in 1953 and the Iranian revolution in 1979, Iran was the most, the most important ally of the United States in the region. Um, and so when the communist government of Afghanistan <clears throat> was was threatened and indeed was overthrown. The the Soviets regarded that as like the advance of Western imperialism onto their doorstep, you know. 
um, and the Soviet leaders at the time were less expansionist than we would like to remember them as, and more concerned about their defensive posture, more concerned about being surrounded or ringed um, by NATO and its allies. And so they just wanted a country that they controlled between Moscow and, and Tehran. I mean, ironically, the, the Iranian government was overthrown the same year. That's why I like to, I really like to call 1979 like a fulcrum point of history. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, the Soviet, I mean, just like we would, I mean, we don't like, we don't know this because we're surrounded by oceans. Um, and we have two like weak and very friendly neighbors on either side of us. Um, but, but countries, uh, but other countries have much more endemic security problems, um, have been invaded and conquered. And, and so the Soviets had this memory of the great game and world war II and all this stuff. And they wanted to create, um, a system where they had these satellite states on their on the border on the periphery of the Soviet Union. Um, if they could expand that periphery, great. Um, but they certainly were not going to risk the existence of Moscow. They were not. They were going to risk the existence of the Soviet Union to expand the frontier. What they really wanted to do was to preserve what they already had, yeah. um, and then to work quietly elsewhere in the world to promote communist parties and communist actors. Like I'm not like whitewashing the Soviet Union here. Um, so he was a, was a, was a good, very, very bad actor in, in history. Um, but, uh, but certainly they, re, they viewed Afghanistan as a, as a, you know, uh, a defensive operation. And just like, just like we have a thousand times, they got sucked into it. You know, um, they lost 17,000 troops in Afghanistan between 1979 and 1988 when they finally beat tracks out of there. Um, and, uh, a lot of people credit or I don't know credit, but they they blame the Afghanistan fiasco for contributing to the fall of the Soviet Union, um, as military massive military defeats often do. Um, but uh, but they weren't they weren't using Afghanistan as a staging ground for Iran. Um, they they wanted that buffer zone. Yeah, and uh, the the reigning uh, theory in the United States about the powers that be who run our government is that anything that defeats the Soviet Union is good for the United States, uh, and so. And Democrats bought into this as well as Republicans. Uh, and this is explains, uh, in part, uh, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, who is a creature of these political times, as David already alluded to. He was a senator for most of this time, uh, a cold warrior senator, I should say, and supported very much uh, pretty much every single initiative, uh, financial uh, expenditure uh, to fight the Soviet Union in this larger battle. But... His response to the, the bombings um, at the airport in Afghanistan is more of the kind of rhetoric that we hear. We, I'm doing this off the top of my... Oh, the headline is right here. We will hunt you down, Biden vows. And, you know, how do I explain this, David? Get your response on this. I mean, it's, it's horrible that 13 Americans among all the people, like 200 people who else died, died. And I know it's going to be really difficult for their families, but just proclaiming and vowing, we will hunt you down, we will get you. It's more of that rhetoric that Bush employed at the start of the war. I, who's the who they're going to hunt down? Who are they going to get? Will What will it take to, quote unquote, get them? It's like when it's in the city of Chicago and there's a gang shooting, and the next gang comes up and shoots somebody, all our leaders say, oh, that's terrible. There should be no retaliation, even though they do it in their own personal lives. Uh, and yet, Biden sounds like 
a Chicago gangster. You know what I'm saying? We will get you. We will hunt you down. And politically, I don't know if there's any other response you can make in this country because the other side, no matter what, will attack you as weak, will blame you for the death of the Americans. This is how we politicize all this stuff. It would be happening if this happened under Trump's watch, which you easily could have because he was heading down the same path. It would have been Democrats. The MSNBC would be going berserk about the loss of Afghanistan and this powerful so-called, what happened to the American conservative values of the Republican Party? I can hear the rhetoric coming out of their mouths. And yeah. I mean, you don't have to imagine it. It's, it's, what, it's how Democrats reacted when Trump like pulled out of Syria, you know, and everybody was like, what about the Kurds? And oh, what a dereliction, you know, and then nothing happened, you know. Um, and so, yeah, this rhetoric, Ben, this is how the imperial adventures perpetuate themselves. I will never sound more lefty than when I'm talking about foreign policy, by the way. Um, but this is, this is how empire perpetuates itself, right? Because um, there is always going to be a boundary between the empire and the people that we are trying to subjugate. Right? People want to criticize Biden for the withdrawal, and that's fine. I'm not one of these people that's like, uh, can't, can't stand a criticism of Biden or like, there's absolutely nothing we could have done differently to make this less messy. Like, I think that's absurd. Um, and if you can't, you can't, you can't go on and, and criticize your, your, your dear leader, you might as well just put on a red hat and join the cult. You know what I mean? Like then you're not in a political party anymore. You're in a cult. And I think that there is a, there's an extent to which the Biden is, you know, uh, I don't necessarily know that Democrats should go form committees in Congress about this. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, people deserve some answers about what are the failures that led to, uh, not having contingency plans to get everybody out that we wanted to get out. Um, that said, right. You can, you can imagine a scenario where it's like, I, I heard somebody on the show say, well, we should have secured the airport perimeter. It's like, okay, secure the airport perimeter. But whatever the perimeter is, that's where you're going to encounter ISIS-K and the Taliban, right? Uh, okay, we'll secure a whole passage from downtown Kabul to the airport. Okay, well, that's where you're going to have to process people. Like there was always going to be a place, there was always going to be a perimeter that was vulnerable when we were evacuating the country. Um and it's such a, it must be really shocking to the American people to have reporters throwing around the term ISIS-K all of a sudden, right? I'm like, what is that, special K? You know, uh, I, thought, I thought Trump said that ISIS was defeated everywhere and there was no more ISIS in the world. And it turns out ISIS has been in Afghanistan the whole time since 2015. Um, they're the sworn enemies of the Taliban. I don't know if we have time to get into that. But, uh, uh, but, the, but they and the Taliban are at war with each other, right? And so we are evacuating the country in the context of two wars, like, like you, you're in the context of a civil war between Taliban and, and, and ISIS and a second kind of civil war that didn't really turn out to be much of a war at all between the Taliban and the government that we had put in place in Kabul. Um, and so one way or another, I think that this could have been pulled off better, right? But one way or another, the evacuation was going to invite attacks um, from people who wanted to kill us on our way out. Um, and instead of uh, you, you know, grieving and expressing your condolences and saying like, look, this was a dangerous mission. Like we gave our troops a really, really dangerous mission. Um, we, we are conducting um, probably the largest uh, human airlift in, in the history of the world. Um, it's a huge logistical challenge, no matter how you slice it. Uh, and, the, and the reality is in order to pull all of the Americans out of Afghanistan and to get the translators and, and a lot of the other people that want to get out of the way of the Taliban, we have to put our troops in harm's way. We have to we have to expose them um, somewhere, 
that could be at the airport, that could be in downtown Kabul, that could be south of Kabul, whatever, right? Like there was, there was the idea that we were going to get out of this, but no casualties is, is deranged. And if you want to go bomb some ISIS camps, fine. Um, but the, the, this is the, this is the, the decision point is like, can Biden absorb the political, like, let's, let's not kid ourselves, right? Like Biden has taken a huge political hit from what's happened over the last two weeks. Um, but does he have the, you know, the stick to it to say like, I'm going to absorb the political hit. Uh, we're going to lob a few tomahawks into the mountains and say, we, we, we hit ISIS, whatever. Um, and then continue to get out. Or is this attack going to be the excuse um, to say like, well, <clears throat> actually the Taliban needs 2000 American military advisors um, to defeat ISIS. <laughs> oh my God. Something yeah, honestly wow. I could really see happening is like the Absolutely. Taliban being like, oh, uh, man, I know we told you to leave, but uh, could you come back? Because these people are actually crazier than us and we need your help, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's where Biden has to draw the line and say like, look, man, Trump negotiated, Trump handed you the country, just take it uh, um, and God bless. Uh, if anybody tries to mess with us, we're going to, you know, we're going to drone strike you, whatever. Um, and I understand the politics, of course. Um, Biden can't be like, we're going to turn the other cheek, folks, um, because that's just not the country that we live in. Um, but but you, you do hope that there are people inside the Biden administration um, who who understand that this was the right move, that, that it has gotten really messy and politically problematic. Um, but that the right, you need to follow through. You need to see it through. You need to get out of Afghanistan. That's what the American people wanted. Um, that's what Biden was elected to do um, and to, to complete the job of getting out. And if he allows this one attack to draw us back in, uh, you know, then he's no better than the people that got us in there in the first place, honestly. And I, and I hope that's not what happens. Well, Who knows? Uh, I'll remind you of something that happened. Uh, I think it was 1983. I'm going back in time again. Been around a long time. In 1983, uh, Ronald Reagan thought it was a good idea to send Marines into Lebanon, get involved in that civil war. Uh, and there was an attack. Uh, the uh, dormitory where Marines were sleeping was blown up. And over 200 Marines died in that attack. And I, the, about the only thing I will ever give Ronald Reagan credit for was he did not respond to that attack by pouring in more troops, doubling down. He pulled the troops out of Lebanon, and he employed all kinds of BS rhetoric to explain why he was doing it. And then as soon as he found a winnable war to launch, he launched it. And this one was Grenada. He invaded Grenada. And everybody forgot about the, the Marines, except for the families of the Marines, of course, that Marines were blown up. And America was singing patriotic songs and patting itself on the back for liberating the people of Grenada and what a great country we are, what a great, powerful leader we are. I'm telling you, if I repeat what I started, David, if you want to know how much BS people are fed, just follow Chicago politics and just apply the same lessons you learned in Chicago to the rest of the world, and they're just feeding you BS people and you are gobbling it down. But you, I, I know you weren't even probably alive uh, back in '83. No, or, I mean, I'm of Lebanese descent. I mean, I, I know. I mean, I, I know I've been to Lebanon, um, and uh, of course, I was like six years old for this. But I, you know, I've studied it, and um, yeah, I mean, he, Reagan, you know, low key did not actually like to escalate when it was not necessary, um, and he looked at the situation, and he was like, "Well, what the hell are we doing here in the first place?" You know. <laughs> 
Um, we were there to, to like, prop up one side of the Lebanese civil war, like basically a government that had been installed by the Israelis. Um, and Reagan looked at the situation and was like, what do I care? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, I doing, That's like, so Reagan. You know, like, what yeah. do I care? You know, uh, and uh, this is not what the Gipper wants. You know, let's get out of here. So, uh, so he got out. And it's interesting to note that the, the, the group that carried out that attack was Hezbollah, uh, the, the, the Lebanese uh, government slash terrorist organization. Um, and Hezbollah was formed in response to the Israeli invasion. And, and, um, and they, Hezbollah really pioneered the tactic of suicide bombing. Um, and uh, just another lesson, I think that like, there are, you know, there are times, I'm not a hundred, I'm not a, like a hundred percent pacifist, right? Like there are times where I think you have to resort to military force. Um, but we resort to it, you know, 50,000 times more often than is really necessary. And we never think through the, we never think through the second order effects of what we're doing. We never think through like, oh, when we drop a bomb on like a wedding in Somalia, um, uh, are we really thinking about how all the children who survived that bombing are going to want to if they ever see an American in their life, they're going to like they're going to plunge a knife into them. Um, you know these like all these drone strikes that we're carrying out across the region um, under Bush and Obama and Trump and Biden. Biden has actually pulled back on it a little bit. God bless him. God bless his soul. But we're still doing it. Um, we never think it's like oh, do we need to assassinate the like seventeenth in command of like the Yemen branch of like uh, of the ISIS offshoot? Is that something that's really so in America's national security that we have to kill, we have to we have to absorb collateral damage and produce more resentment against us. Um, and it's like you can see the way that these strategies that we've adopted, these violent strategies, um, carry their own momentum from administration to administration because 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 there's an election right around the corner, and this all we're always practicing cover your ass politics. Um, and, you, you know, you can see why maybe Trump didn't want to do this. Right? He didn't want to be the one to pull out. And he didn't want the scenes of this. You know, he didn't want people falling off the airplanes on his watch in the same way that nobody wants to turn off the drone strikes because the next time there's a terrorist attack in the U.S., they're going to be like, well, this guy could have killed this guy with the drone and they didn't. And then he blew up and he blew himself up in Times Square or whatever. Um, it's just every time you get yourself involved militarily, it, it creates incentives to stay. It creates people who resent and want to kill you. Um, and it re really, really rarely solves the problem that it's designed to solve in the first place. Actually, I have to take a, a challenge you on one point. And I'm going to begin this challenge by saying, as David knows, and my listeners know, I don't know if there's anyone in America who despised Trumpism more than I do and fought harder uh, to make sure that Donald Trump was no longer our president. But one thing, one thing, that I did appreciate about Donald John Trump is that he openly didn't give a hoot about bowing down to the old standards that all the other politicians felt compelled to bow down to, including some whacked out stuff like standing with Putin when he denounced American, uh, the American CIA and American spies. And conversely, not giving a damn what people said when he had the when, when he talked about the Kurds, the blood of the Kurds is on his hand. He goes, I don't care about the Kurds. They did some bad things, too. We did bad things, too. I mean, Donald John Trump, I think he it just he ran out of the clock ran out on him in terms of getting out of 
uh, Afghanistan. If this happened on Trump's watch, he'd be attacking Democrats. He'd be calling uh, calling them warmongers. He'd be reminding everybody that they're the ones who got us into this mess in the first place. And you know what? MAGA would be waving their flags and supporting him. And it would be MSF Fox would be figuring out some way to present this as though it's a triumph for America uh, and doubting whether the casualties are real. And maybe it's Antifa. I don't know. Uh, you know, so on Omar, they'd be tying, they'd be tying, they'd be like, ah, this ISIS of, well, Democrats got the ISIS in Congress. It's Ilhan Omar. It's the squad. You know, it's radical Islamic terrorism. Democrats love it. It's their fault. Yes. This kind of, kind of stuff, right? Like, you know how this would go. Yes. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, tr- Trump, uh, there were like three times during the Trump administration where I was like, actually, this is actually the right move. Um, <laughs> one was when he, went to, you know, when he was like, let's talk to North Korea instead yes. of whatever it is we've been doing for 20 years. Uh, yeah. Why don't we talk? I mean, after the Twitter, you know, after I'm going to blow you up and you have a small penis. <laughs> yes, all that, after, yeah. Missile man um, and all that. Yeah. The idea of talking to Kim Jong-un instead of, you know, remember all the blob beltway professionals were like, well, that'll just give him the, like, you, you can't legitimize Kim Jong-un like legitimacy is some currency that you can trade in international politics. Um, and then when he, you know, um, when he decided to pull out of Afghanistan and, and it's like he didn't, he, he put the framework in a place, right? God knows if he would have actually gone through with it this year if he was president, but his instincts were right. I mean, he came into office, he was like, what are we doing over here? You know, we, we, I got all these wars in the Middle East. And of course, that's on one shoulder. On the other shoulder is all the, is all the pro-Israel hawks who wanted him to go to war with Iran. Yeah. And got him into this, like, a line, you know, he loved the Saudis who are no better than any of these people. Right? No, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> You're bringing me back to earth. Donnie Trump is... Uh, yeah, and and then don't forget his uh, bizarre little uh, romance with John Bolton, uh, which lasted, I forget how long, before... And then the, like nine months. And then the yeah, same... The same combine tried to turn John Bolton into a hero for getting fired by Trump. I'm like, this country is so whacked out, uh, David. I just... You know, oh, Lord. Just, uh, people love their, uh, their Republican daddies, man. They, they love these, they love these war hawks. They love to put them on TV. Yeah. It's like the panel, you know, the CNN panel about Afghanistan is like five, five retired military contractors and, and somebody who started the Iraq war. And they're all like, this is terrible. You know, and it's like, this is your fault. You know, I'm like you, you stuck us with this problem, you know? Yes. It, yes. Yeah. Blame the execution all you want. Right. But fundamentally Biden inherited an impossible situation. Um, that was going to yeah. end way somehow. Um, and all these people that got us into these wars that have really had the blood of hundreds of thousands of people on their hands, just like flushed a generation's worth of wealth down the toilet. They're all on TV. Like, like nothing ever happened. Right? Like there's just yeah. no way to get yourself booted out of polite society in America. Even if you start like two of the most disastrous wars um, in the history of this country, you just like, okay, well we need to book somebody to talk about this. So is uh, John Bolton doing anything? Let's get him on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's promote him. So I'll yeah. close with this. I'll close with this question for you, David. It was four hundred. I think it was four twenty to one. Uh, if is that? I think that's the quote. The number I saw in your essay. Uh, so, so that is senators in the house. In the house. Uh, and I don't know what the vote in the Senate was. Was it? It was either ninety eight or ninety nine to nothing. So no, no senators oh, wow. voted against it. So my my beloved Bernie Sanders didn't vote against it either. Uh, was Bernie in the House or the the Senate? By the way, back then he was, in, he was in the House. He was, he was in, the in the House. house. At the time. 
Okay, so he voted yes. for it. All right, Bernie. You're not perfect, Bernie. Yeah. Uh, so are, would there be more than one if that vote were to happen today? Do you think, there were, have we progressed that much? I would, again, going back to Chicago politics, the, the, the epitome of bad politics in Chicago in terms of the average citizen's mind is the selling of the parking meters, which even a Chicagoans realizes a bad eye. Even Chicagoans, they, it's, as much as they love their mayor, even Chicagoans have co come to the conclusion that was not a good deal. Five yeah. aldermen voted against it, uh, and all the rest voted for it or were hiding under their desks. So now I always say we've made progress in Chicago because I think if they had that vote today, there may be 15 aldermen who would vote against it. So has there been similar progress uh, in Congress? Would it be more than one no vote if the similar matter came uh, to a vote today? I mean, it's apples and oranges, right? I mean, I think if you if you went to Congress today and you were like, should we have invaded Afghanistan? I'm not even sure it would get a majority, right? But you you like you have to imagine the context of the time. Um, if tomorrow morning um, somebody flew a bunch of planes into like Miami or something and killed five thousand people, um, and we knew who did it, uh, and it required an invasion, I don't. I mean, more than one, yes, a majority now. Um, I don't think that we've. We have learned, we always learn the lessons in hindsight. We have, we have, of course, we have learned, I think a majority of the American people and a majority of Congress think that Afghanistan was a mistake. The question is, the next time this happens, will we be able to step back from our grief and our desire for vengeance to ask ourselves, do our goals line up with our capabilities? Do we have the power to do what, we're, what we wanna do here? Is there another way? to find justice for the people who were killed? Um, and is there another way to deal with the problem of, of terrorism rather than chasing every single group that, that hurts us around the globe over and over again and killing their commanders and then killing their deputy commanders and then killing their children and then killing them at weddings? Um, I don't know. Uh, the reaction to this ISIS attack suggests to me that we have not actually learned the lesson, we've not learned a lesson in a way that can be applied to the next crisis. Um, and it's gonna be up to everybody uh, who really does recognize the fundamental disastrous nature of what we have done here. Uh, we, we are going to have to stand on alert the next time this happens and try to stop, uh, try to stop ourselves from doing something really stupid again, you know, mm. so that our kids don't have to do this. All right. Well, my, uh, my suggestion uh, will be, is uh, remains the same for the last 30 years. Bring back the draft. I'll leave it there. Bring back the draft and they'll be thinking long and hard before they launch more wars uh, the baby boomers, I'm going to rip you guys. You, you spoke out against this kind of stuff only for as long as your necks were on the line. As soon as the draft was gone and your necks weren't on the line, you turned into Reagan voters and Trump voters. Shame, shame on you, all you baby boomers out there with a few exceptions. Uh, anyway, I had to end on that little self-righteous rant. Um, <laughs> Denouncing baby boomers who are responsible somehow or other for Charlie Wilson's war. A dreadful movie, if there ever was one. All right. David Ferris, thank you so much. That It was really an enlightening conversation, and I'm going to do everything I can to promote it and get people to listen to it. Uh, and I urge folks also, uh, these deep dives with David are really helpful to check out the one on uh, Israel and Palestine. You may learn a lot about that, too. And uh, so thanks uh, so much, David, for coming on the show. We'll bring you back real soon. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Ben. It's always a good time. And, uh, you know, have a great weekend. And the next time, I'm just going to say this, 
before we leave, I already warned David about this. We're we're moving on at the Ben Jarowski show. We're going to have video as well as audio. So the next time, fingers crossed. <laughs> you know, it could always I could always screw it up. Uh, you'll be able to watch us, so you'll get to see these two handsome faces uh, talking, as opposed to just hearing our lovely voices. So let's hope uh, David will be wearing a tie. I'm sure. <laughs> Definitely. They'll give me incentive to stick with my diet for two more weeks, okay? Oh, so okay. Go. Uh, very good. All right, David Ferris, thank you very much. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Bye.